everyone. Uh, welcome back to the Poplar Tapes. Uh, thank you for joining us. My name is Keegan Irish, and I'm here with my friends Alex and Will. Uh, you guys want to introduce yourselves? Hey, uh, I'm uh, Alex. Uh, I've been a regular on the podcast, and I'm sure many of you will recognize my voice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but Will has not been a regular. He's our, our newest yeah. uh, guest here. So, Yes, hello. I'm William Valliere, a, a poet in Montreal, a colleague of Alex's. And I'm not a, 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 a specialist on fascism, but I have eyes and ears. So um, in these days, I think that qualifies. Yeah, no doubt. Definitely. And uh, we all have to be experts now. And I think that is, in large part, what why we wanted to do this episode and uh, uh, was to kind of break down what fascism is, why that might be relevant to our kind of contemporary political situation and really uh, dive into that stuff. So it should be fun. We have a ton that we're kind of trying to do and like condense into this episode because this is such a um, huge and complex topic. So um yeah, so we might treat a few things kind of more superficially than uh, someone might like. But if you hear something that we say and you're like, oh, I'd like to hear more about that, you know, that'd be cool. Um, if you wanted to reach out and talk to us about that kind of thing, I'm sure we'd be excited to do that because we're not going to be able to cover everything that we wanted to go over today. But um, yeah, we are really excited for this episode. We think that we've got some really kind of cool ideas that um, we can share with you all and that hopefully uh, this discussion can kind of give you a set of launching off points or some orienting principles when we're thinking about um, these questions of is fascism around today? Is this a serious concern? Is fascism going to emerge? What do these kind of, what do the contemporary uh, transitions in power mean for politics? All those kind of things. Um, We hope to kind of get into that and just unpack it a little bit and scratch beneath the surface because I think so often, um, fascism is one of those terms that's thrown around in political discourse. It's an insult, you know, oh, everyone I don't like is a fascist. My enemies, those guys are fascist. Yeah. <laughs> the pigs are fascist, you know, and all right, maybe they are. But if they are, what does that actually mean, right? Um, is the police force here fascist? Well, I don't know. Let's find out. Uh, let's kind of dive in and unpack what that terminology is all about. So, yeah, anything you guys want to say right off the bat, kind of on that subject, or, uh, you know, about before we really get into the nitty gritty, like what you're thinking, some of that more uh, broad picture points? Yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, well, uh, to just add on to what you're already saying is uh, that in order to in order to kind of give a broad picture of these different interpretations of fascism or these different uh, faces of fascism that have that have emerged historically, uh, and in order to kind of grasp uh, what, what these terms might mean in a contemporary historical moment and, uh, what they mean from these different perspectives. We're going to be, uh, like, we're going to be following a specific pattern, like uh, Keegan said, right? So we're not going to be, uh, you know, covering the entirety of fascism because that would be so bloody impossible. Uh, you know, there's tons of material that's been uh, published on it. There are films uh, dedicated. To, uh, there are all kinds of artistic expressions about it. There's such a huge wealth of material on it. Uh, so we're going to be following a really specific kind of trajectory, a historical trajectory, if you will, 
of the evolution of fascism from different uh, perspectives over time, mostly from the early 20th century or late 19th century, mid to late 19th century onwards to a kind of 20th century, or 21st century uh, context, but obviously picking and choosing the periods and moments, right? Anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so obviously we're not going to give an um, exhaustive account of the most important political development of the 20th century, (laughs) (laughs) but we are going to try and take some snapshots, some interpretive snapshots that we think might be uh, relevant to our our contemporary context to kind of enrich our understanding when we think about contemporary politics, right? So – yeah, we read a ton of uh, history in preparation for this episode, and you know there are some really, really detailed uh, historical accounts of the rise of fascism and so on. And we're not going to be doing that kind of taking a fine comb to look at each in- individual kind of event or anything like that. Rather, we're interested in political theory. We're interested in the interpretation of the history. So I think that's really the... Um, angle that or the approach that we're taking you know is what what does this mean for political theory and what does this mean for understanding politics right so yeah just to kind of give some guideposts of 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 how we're approaching and how we're making these sorts of interpretive selections right it 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 really comes from that perspective rather than saying here's a here's a really dense and effective history that will uh, walk you through step by step. Instead, it's more like, here are these different interpretations and how do they work and how do they square up with the history? And what does that mean then when we turn that interpretive framework on another time and another place besides uh, kind of the famous instances of 20th century fascism? So um, yeah, those are some questions that we're going to be interested in today. Cool. So if I could just describe the arc that we're going to take briefly so that folks have a sense of where we're headed. Um, we're going to talk about, like Alex was saying, some different theoretical interpretations of um, fascism. We're going to talk about totalitarian theory. We're going to talk about Marxist theory. We're going to talk about what are the differences between those things and um, how do they kind of square up. We're going to look at um, a very kind of historically rooted analysis of um fascism and how that theorizes it and uh then we're gonna say okay so when we look at those three things how are those useful for talking about the north american context today and i think that um that's where we're headed with it and that's why we're going to kind of draw out the particular threads that we're going to draw out here so yeah that is about right so let's jump in then yeah yeah Mm -hmm. cool so yeah, I really wanted to start by talking about uh, totalitarian theory. And this is kind of, well, for a variety of reasons. Um, first of all, because it is just interesting to me. And this is something that I've spent a lot of time uh, researching um, for uh, my own master's degree, right? I wrote a, 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 I don't know if I've talked about this much on the podcast before, but I did my uh, philosophy master's thesis on Hannah Arendt, actually. And Arendt is sort of the really 
big figure in this this theory of understanding fascism you know she was an early um analyst of the connection between uh anti-semitism and fascism and their kind of uh historical trajectory and also probably one of the most famous and um you know uh yeah so i just think it's really interesting to dive into that stuff and it's really crucial for understanding because i think a lot of Arendt's uh perspectives and analysis analyses still undergird and inform a lot of the kind of common sense understandings of fascism that people uh work with today like when you say the word fascism there's going to be a lot of kind of uh, connective tissue between Arendt's theorization of totalitarianism and the way that people understand fascism. And importantly, uh, part of that connective tissue is this um, parallel that she drew out between um, Nazi fascism and uh, Soviet communism. And so from Arendt's perspective, these can both uh, both of these historical regimes can be lumped together under this theoretical umbrella, which she calls totalitarianism. And so, you know, we can get into more detail about why that is, and also why um, that has been criticized a lot. And I think, you know, really. Arendt's book came out in the 50s, The Origins of Totalitarianism, and by already, you know, at that time from the Marxist left and uh, by the 1960s in um, the States and so on, people were criticizing the book for its um, uh, equivocation between Nazism and Soviet communism and the, uh, the way that that equivocation actually served American foreign policy in the context of the, of the cold war. Um, so it's kind of analytical relevance is challenged on the basis of its, uh, prior political commitments, you might say. Okay. And that history, I think, is especially important when we think about the way that Arendt's star has really risen again in recent years, you know, especially in the United States um, with Trump and uh, these kind of new fears about a, a totalitarian rule at home, right? This, this, um, this experience drove people to uh, seek understanding. Um, and Arendt's particular interpretation of the history of oppression and racism has a certain cachet with the American political class, um, a version of, so to kind of demonstrate that, right, a version of the origins of totalitarianism was published with a preface by Samantha Power. Um, and, uh, you know, Arendt is cited in Madeleine Albright's uh, contentious book on fascism, right? Like these are people who worked for the Bush administration and are, uh, you know, architects of the Iraq war and so on. And they're, they're drawing on, uh, on Arendt to say, oh, well, it's Trump who's the fascist. I'm like, okay, maybe, uh, let's see. But yeah, and even so the new president, Joe Biden, he's actually historically in the 70s, um, while Arendt was still alive, he corresponded with Arendt. He uh, wrote letters, uh, a letter to her after she published her essay in the New Yorker, which was uh, called Home to Roost or something like this, uh, which was about the Vietnam War and the way that Americans for American foreign policy was uh, impacting the political culture at home. So interesting connection, but also kind of troubling, right? You know, like this Pro close proximity to uh, the American political establishment, uh, you know, from an anti-imperialist perspective, uh, kind of raises some, some yeah. important questions. <laughs>
And so there is, uh, I wanted to follow a, a particular thread of critique about Arendt because especially in the American context, I think that it is um, really, really important because so Arendt, you know, it's important to say, fled from the Nazi regime, right? And she came to America as a refugee. You know, she was uh, herself Jewish and, you know, knew people who died in the camps and all the rest. So she was pretty staunchly opposed to the Nazis, obviously. But in her new context, living uh, in America, you know, she lived there as a settler. And she uh, understood the world still very much through a, a, a European lens, which um, argued for the kind of primacy and legitimacy of the American political um, experiment, right? And so the political tenure of her thought, where it's taken up in the American political establishment, it it, it becomes even more suspect when we directly uh, confront the anti-blackness that uh, is in her work and that is present in her worldview. And in so many ways, um, the American, this is sort of the cost of defending the American experiment, right? Is to also assert a, a, a degree of anti-blackness and a, a, a degree of imperialism, right? Um, so I think that, I just think that's important to note. So I'm just going to say a few things about that to try and draw this out and um, make sense of this stuff. Okay, so Arendt really, she asserts her kind of understanding of the uh, history of black people in America in advance and claims to be able to sort of frame the debate, right? Anti-blackness is almost completely written off uh, from the beginning for Arendt as a uh, scholar who I know uh, Anna Stoutenberg wrote, right? So this way in which anti-blackness is written off from the beginning is illustrated in an example of um, Arendt's correspondence with James Baldwin, wherein she quite directly attacks his writings by asserting the priority of her distinction between the public and the private, and she delegitimizes uh, the black struggle for civil rights. Um, she specifically links black Americans fighting against segregation with her realm of the social. So she's taking her theory and she's applying that onto the experience of black Americans and saying, oh, no, well, your struggle isn't legitimate because it's it's only a social struggle and it's not genuinely political. Right. So there's this uh, dismissal and this writing it off in advance. Right. So Arendt's willful ignorance about black history was actually well cultivated. She um, co uh, corresponded with black intellectuals intellectuals and historians and yet stubbornly refused to let their wisdom and insights shape her thinking in a meaningful way. Um, she studiously avoids citing them in their areas of expertise, instead turning to European sources from the philosophical canon and tired colonial cliches designed to erase the humanity of colonized people. And so this trend is especially prevalent in the origins of totalitarianism. So yeah, this characterization may seem kind of problematic uh, when we revisit the book and uh, compare it to contemporary scholarship. <clears throat> okay, so Arendt in so many ways reproduces the worst narratives of the causes of colonialism and in so doing erases the humanity of colonized and enslaved peoples. When describing the colonization of Africa, she admits that a, quote, population existed, but she falls well short of recognizing their humanity. Uh, she describes Africa as a land that was overpopulated, direct quotation. Uh, she goes on to say... That's so fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> sounds, like, like, sounds, sounds, yeah. sounds like such... Uh, the, the, exactly the kind of logic that imperialists would use. You know what I mean? 
Yeah, yeah. And this is supposed to be like the critique of imperialism, you know. But And yes, and so that really became the basis of her understanding of the origins of the concept of race, you know, is that it, is she, she locates the concept of race as being originally created in the context of, of, of the Boers who are like disgusted by the overpopulation of Africa, which is just you know, really it's bad. It's bad history. You know, it's obviously bad history and it's also deeply racist. So that sucks on multiple counts. Right. And she also says that uh, colonization took place in America and Australia continents that did not have a history or culture of their own, you know? And so even though she kind of, uh, yeah, superficially condemns the massacres that took place in colonialism. You know, she obviously reproduces like the worst forms of racism. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I guess I wanted to ask the question, like, what is it about this text that has allowed it to endure and have this recent renaissance? Um, and I think that the, answer is kind of twofold on the one hand it reproduces the mythical history of the west that undergirds the logic of american exceptionalism and the uh, foreign policy objectives of contemporary american empire Mm -hmm. on the other hand uh there's something kind of more subtle and philosophical about the text that does still uh resonate um, you know, Samuel Moyne uh, articulates this second point well in a recent article entitled You Have Misunderstood the Relevance of Hannah Arendt, in which he argues that Arendt's work has been pillaged uh, throughout the Trump regime to condemn them, and that Arendt's greatest value is really in the autopsy of a bad regime. He writes, quote, The idea of a clean break with guilt was just another mode of convincing ourselves that we are exempt from universal responsibility. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm. So this universal responsibility that is usually offered up as a defense of um, Arendt, right? It's like, well, you know, she might have had these blind spots, but there's this kind of universal ethic and universal responsibility that is, um, you know, so crucial. Uh, you know, a lot of black scholars now are, um, especially in like the Afro-pessimism movement and this kind of thing, have criticized uh, this idea of a universality, um, especially where there's a kind of lack of recognition of the real um, history of slavery, right? Uh, The modern world owes to slavery, not only, uh, quote, the infrastructure of its global economy, but also the architecture of its theological and philosophical discourses, its legal and political institutions, its scientific and technological practices, indeed, the whole of its semantic field. Okay, and that's from Frank Wilderson, the Afro-Pessimist scholar. Um, So in turn, this kind of universal rights discourse is also constructed on the basis of the enslavement of Black people. But I think it's just important to point out that Arendt is committed to anti-Blackness because she's committed to defending the American state as the model of freedom and the only available bulwark against the totalitarian violence, which she identifies in um, the Nazi regime and in the Soviet communism, right? And so now I just wanted to quickly talk about what her understanding of um, uh, totalitarianism is and why it has had these kind of interesting resonances with what's going on today um and specifically like what has happened in the trump regime and like why i think that um people really gravitated to her thought on this stuff okay yes uh so basically 
she argues that totalitarianism is this novel, uh, like radically new form of governance that breaks from, you know, 2,500 years of political theory, which has understood kind of certain forms of um, political oppression, right? Which she describes as despotism, tyranny, and dictatorship. Whereas totalitarianism has developed, quote, an entirely new political institutions and destroyed all social, legal, and political traditions of the country. There's this sense that totalitarianism is unprecedented, that it's this complete break from tradition, that, um, you know, it has these kind of essential characteristics, which I'll describe in one second, um, that are different than any other form of political governance which had existed in um, the West before. And so what are these kind of uh, essential characteristics of um, totalitarianism? Well, that would be this idea of that they're governed by an ideology. And so she says that um, totalitarianism breaks from or explodes the very alternative on which all definitions of the essence of governments have been based in political philosophy. That is the alternative between lawful and lawless government, between arbitrary and legitimate power. Totalitarianism defies all positive laws. It operates neither with the guidance of law, nor is it arbitrary, for it claims to obey strictly and unequivocally those laws of nature or of history from which all positive laws have always been supposed to spring. Okay. So um, nature and history, she's putting those two together because for her that is the um, Nazi uh, political project uh, is based in this supposed law of nature, right? Where it's this Darwinian struggle between um, races for supremacy and that over the long span of history, um, the Aryan race will emerge on top, right? And so the Nazi regime seeks to transform its society into the perfect instrument for this law of nature to be exercised in the world. And then she says, in the same way, the Soviet regime is based on this idea of the struggle between classes, which over the course of history will inevitably be won by the proletarians. And um, the Soviet regime uh, sought to uh, transform its society into the perfect instrument for the law of history to be exercised much more rapidly, right? And so in this way, any relationship between legitimacy grounded in positive law is destroyed, right? Uh, because these regimes claim to be um, – claim, claim to have a higher form of legitimacy. Yeah, so this is the idea. And so she says that these – kinds of totalitarian regimes are what she calls ideologies. And so there's the the ideology of Nazism, there's the ideology of communism, because they are the exercise of the logic of an idea through history. And um, as more important than, as privileged over um, the experience of um, human freedom. So they're willing to sacrifice human freedom for the sake of these uh, laws. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's the idea. And I think there are certain reasons why people read this now and say, Oh, like 
I can see these connections to what's happening now. And I, I want to read, there's one quote that you guys have probably heard, which is, quote, the ideal subject of totalitarian rule is not the convinced Nazi or the convinced communist, but people for whom the distinction between fact and fiction, i.e. the reality of experience, and the distinction between true and false, i.e. the standards of thought, no longer exist, end quote. I've seen that thrown around a lot with respect to, like, fake mm-hmm. news and all this sort of thing. I think people feel at, at a kind of a visceral level that, that somehow this is uh, connected. And there's certain insights, you know, that she has over the course of this text that ring true to what people are experiencing now. But I think that that um, kind of, you know, what I'm going to describe as like idealist conception of what these historical uh, regimes were like and what they did, right? Um, I think that those things are are deeply problematic. And as we'll start to walk through some of the other definitions of fascism here, we'll we'll be able to see why they're a bit mistaken and misguided, right? Like it's not really true that totalitarianism, that Nazism, let's say, annihilated all of the institutions that existed in its society, you know, in Really, they had these kind of um, complex, at times uh, tense relationships with existing institutions. And in fact, those existing institutions were necessary for them to come to power. So there's some some weird kind of historical mistakes that are happening here that are happening for the sake of this overriding argument about um, ideology in order to kind of create this theoretical definition of totalitarianism, which is supposed to, you know, certainly if you read it, like rhetorically sit alongside these like classical Greek understandings of government, you know, um, republic, democracy, tyranny. And then she's like tacking on totalitarianism. Mm -hmm. And and so that's really the argument that she uh, is wanting to make. Yeah. And it kind of explains too, I think, why she she's kind of the go-to person of the sort of, you know, bourgeois, you know, center left maybe sort of thing, because it it's safe. It's totally safe, right? Like it doesn't at all challenge the existing structures that are here, you know. And I, I didn't know all this stuff about her. I was gonna read her, but now I'm like, ah fuck it, I'll just go to someone better. <laughs> 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 but yeah, so, but it explains why you know she's the one that people go to. You know, like the it's a safe bet, right? It's a safe choice, right? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, because it, it ultimately is about arguing for the legitimacy of existing liberal states, right? Yeah, exactly. and yeah. That, like that's what's at stake for her, and that's why it's important to say that oh, the struggle of black people is really only social; it's not properly political. You know, it doesn't fundamentally question the legitimacy of the American Republic, and in turn, um, you know, the American Republic in its safeguarding of freedom is the only way that uh, the only kind of structure that can protect us from this like potential evil of totalitarianism, which is like always threatening these other forms. You know, you can't go, go too far in on these ideologies, quote unquote, or else you'll be lost in this um, um, kind of vicious logic, this vicious circular logic, which will uh, annihilate freedom and uh, annihilate truth and all the rest. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I mean, I feel like when you, when you're like, wow, I just back, 
you know, let's say four years ago and you just see Trump come to power, you're like, oh no, there really is no freedom and no truth. You know, like I think people had that gut instinctive reaction where they're like, this guy who just is explicitly telling lies and so on is, um, has become ascendant. Uh, I think that there's a gut reaction or knee jerk reaction there where it's like, wow, this is right. There is no, uh, we've annihilated truth and this is a threat and we need to protect our democracy against that. And so, yeah, it's very comfortable as Will, you were saying, it's very comfortable to reach for that, uh, to reach for this kind of theory. So, all right, I'm going to end my, long rant about aren't and totalitarianism there uh i will say there are other people who are totalitarian theorists but i just i don't think that the theory has the kind of uh flexibility to um have serious analytical purchase and so um i think it's worth just going back to that kind of primary text in the movement and talking about some of the issues there so yeah so that's kind of what I wanted to do. Do you guys have any more thoughts on that before we? Yeah, yeah. On? I mean, the uh, I was just going to say uh, really quickly that yeah, that that idea that there's some kind of ideology that's in a sense rejecting you know the freedom of individual citizens or the 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 individual experiences of human citizens for this uh, larger uh, story and the idea that there was some kind of collapse of the diversity of internal orders and political orders and uh, official positions and all of this stuff really made me think of the fact that that's kind of just a rejection of that idea of universal, you know, quote unquote responsibility um, where uh, there's an erasure of all of the complicity, you know, all of the complicity in uh, allowing for not only Nazism to uh, exist, but also the Soviet Union to exist. All of the all the things that, uh, as you say, were integral to the emergence of these ty- types of political formations. Anyway, so yeah, it it is complicated because Arendt is very invested in thinking about complicity and individual responsibility with respect to these movements, like. Um, you know, you might think of Eichmann in Jerusalem, yeah. right, which is basically a whole text about how, wow, if only people under these totalitarian regimes could think and they weren't just completely caught up with a bunch of dumb cliches, then, uh, you know, maybe this wouldn't have happened. And like these, the fact that these guys were just doing their jobs and like just going along with it was precisely uh, the problem. And so we just have this whole group of people who are individually complicit. But it does seem to exonerate at at a larger like institutional level you know the complicity of yeah like liberal and conservative elites um and their role in the existence of nazi government and there's a kind of just sloppiness i think of the equivocation between soviet communism and nazi germany yeah you know they are not the same and it's worth talking about how they're different you know (laughs) Yeah, I think just the fact that it's framed, fascism is framed as an exception is already, at this point, it was disproven almost, sort of. I mean, like, obviously the fascists, like, didn't come into power in the way they did in Germany, but it's still in the general culture in a way that it's not an exception. It seems like it's here to stay, sort of, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's true. Like, it's not this radical break with everything else. Like, no, it's part of it. Like. Yeah, it's part of our social fabric, and that's exactly why it's a threat. <laughs> cool. So I think next we wanted to talk about another, and again, as I was saying, kind of opposed um, 
theoretical interpretation of um, fascism. And so it's opposed in the sense that it has a distinct set of prior uh, political commitments with respect to the Cold War, right? But um, you know, this is a tradition of the interpretation of fascism, which predates even um, the Cold War, right? Like Marxists and their analysis of fascism um, was pretty much taking place from right there at the ground floor, right? Like the opposition between Marxism and fascism or uh, different kinds of communism and leftist um, organizing and political life and fascist organizing and political life, like that has been pretty foundational. And, you know, um, we talk about conservative movements as reactionary movements, right? And that they react to these kind of liberatory um, movements that take place in history. And um, so fascism really, in that sense, is a reactionary movement to the um, communist movements that existed at the time. So I think it's worthwhile to look at what the communists were saying as they were kind of undergoing this ex oppositional um, experience. And so I just wanted to draw on this uh, resolution on fascism uh, written by Clara Zetkin, which uh, was adopted on June 23rd, 1923, by the uh, Communist International Executive Committee, right? So this was sort of the quote-unquote official line of the communists on this new and emerging fascism, right? And so it's worth remembering this is before even the beginning of the Second World War, you know, by 10 years or whatever, or more, 15 years, I guess. A lot of people have probably heard that kind of famous Lenin quote that um, uh, fascism is capitalism in decay. And even there, right, you can see this connection in Marxist thinking between um, capitalism and the structure, the social structures of capitalism and this development of fascism, right? So Clara Zetkin said, fascism is a characteristic symptom of decay, um, an expression of the ongoing dissolution of the capitalist economy and the decomposition of the bourgeois state. Uh, fascism is rooted above all in the impact of the imperialist war, um, which by which I assume she means the First World War, um, and the heightened and accelerated dislocation of the capitalist economy economy that it caused among broad layers of the small and middle bourgeoisie, the small peasantry, and the intelligentsia. This process dashed the hopes of these layers by demolishing their previous conditions of life and the degree of security they had previously enjoyed. I think that's actually a pretty clear quotation, but maybe we can just unpack that a little bit. Uh, so yeah, the sense is that uh, these classes who had previously been sort of protected within the capitalist um, structure, you know, uh, as they experienced this uh, heightened dislocation, right, this discomfort that comes along with um, the First World War, there's like a frustration and an animus and a resentment there that leads them to um, kind of lash out in uh, increasingly violent ways, um, as we'll see. She says that the fascists, right, who are composed from these kind of middle, quote unquote, middle classes, right, or just disillusioned people in general by the um, kind of capitalist system, they they form themselves into um, internally incoherent uh, but deeply violent 
groupings, right, and who assert that they they want to construct this this strong state which will um, you know stand apart from class and party, which will carry out their contradictory uh, program. It's true in the early days, right? The, the fascist program was very uh, kind of confused and full of all these different contradictory elements, right? Uh, but she writes, the bourgeoisie was quick to recruit fascism to its service and use it in its struggle to beat down and permanently enslave the proletariat. As the dislocation of the capitalist economy extends over time and deepens, the burdens and suffering that this imposes on the proletariat become more intolerable. And so, too, the protection against the pressure of the working masses offered to the bourgeois order by reformist sermons on civil peace and democratic class collaboration grow ineffective. The bourgeoisie needs to use aggressive force to defend itself against the working class. So um, the bourgeois techniques of trying to placate the working class by offering them this kind of peace and harmony and like we'll have these class collaborations and we'll work together and it'll be great and all this stuff. That doesn't work as well, you know, after the kind of horrors of the First World War, the, the working class is starting to think, you know what? No, maybe that's not the case, right? Maybe we aren't going to have these class collaborations. Hey, maybe these communists are actually right, and it is the fault of these capitalists and imperialists that we live in uh, misery and that we're oppressed. And the capitalist says, all right, if they're thinking that, then you know, gloves are coming off. Let's hire these fascists and beat them down, right? Basically is what she seems to be saying there. She also talks about the way that within uh, fascism itself, it unleashes these conflicts between the old established bureaucracy and the new fascist one, right? So as fascism starts to establish itself, as it is um, accepted by the bourgeois state and utilized by the bourgeois state, there are internal conflicts there between the goals of the fascists and the new fascist bureaucracy and the old established uh, bourgeois state. And so there already you can see the fundamental difference from the totalitarian theory, which says, oh no, there is this radical essential break between the society that births fascism and the totalitarian uh, society, which instead eradicates the very existence of any kind of positive law or any kind of prior existing bureaucracy, right? So um, this is a theory of fascism which posits that it is composed of these, uh, these different classes internally undergoing conflict, right, as they try and defend uh, a form of capitalism which has been threatened by its own kind of catastrophic uh, destructive impulses in the form of imperialism. So yeah, did that seem like a cogent explanation of how that kind of Marxist class analysis of fascism works? What did you guys think of that? And do you have other thoughts about this? Yeah, I think that makes sense. And it's almost like you're... I don't know. It's almost as if, you know, capitalism can just absorb anything. Yeah. Like literally, it's sort of like absorbed fascism, too, in a sense, right? Like, they're not totally incompatible things. Like, capitalism, like the blob, just took it in and used some of its fucking, you know, techniques. Yeah. The blob. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I prefer that model than the exception one, obviously. I find that one hard to follow, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And and uh and it's exactly that. Like like you're saying, there's this especially after the first world war, because uh, this is 
this was published in 1923, I think, right? So it's yeah. like shortly after the First World War. And because of the war, it uh, there were um, there was like a serious uh, destabilization of the yeah social and uh, class structures within different societies, especially the ones that suffered the most from the First World War, mm-hmm. and uh, people who had kind of lost their status, you know, um, could have been appealed to buy the fascists or the socialists. And, you know, this is a period when socialism and fascism are competing a lot over uh, the future of politics in Europe, basically, and yeah. in a lot of different countries. And so, and, and yeah, like in this particular scenario, fascism, uh, like Will was saying, uh, is able to be recruited by the bourgeois state, let's say, or the bourgeois classes to be put towards a very particular group of uh, economic interests and political interests and be used as a counter-revolutionary force against mm-hmm. against the socialists, basically, in a way. So. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, and so the argument here is that the fascists never could have gotten power without the existing bourgeois establishment, even insofar as there was friction between the two. Mm-hmm. Right? And I do think that is a compelling, pretty compelling argument, right? And yeah, as as Will mentioned, is clearly distinct from the idea that there's something essential about this totalitarianism, which fundamentally breaks from the existing structures. Like, this argument instead says, no, it's a development, fascism is a development and an outgrowth of the existing um, forms of uh, political structure, of the existing material conditions, and so on, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. To use another horror movie reference, it's like yeah. Alien, when the thing's on the ship and people are carrying it, right? It's not an external, like, it's external, but it's internal, too. Right? Yeah. 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 It's within you. you it comes bursting out. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's born by puncturing through your stomach. You. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's gestating within you. It's hunted you. <laughs> and yeah, you become the vessel. And the you here would be like the um, former liberal states that had been you know, so deeply shaken by this first world war that we're seeing these new class contradictions, right? The rising power of the big bourgeois, the weakness of the petty bourgeois. They're like, Oh, you know, we want, we want a slice of that pie. We want a little bit of that power, you know, give yeah, some yeah. our way. And, yeah. you know, they got angry about that and kind of like come together and targets various groups in the very, uh, uh, mismatched way. And I think another big difference here between this interpretation of fascism and the totalitarian version is there's nothing in there about uh, ideology at all. In fact, it says that it argues that fascism is internally deeply contradictory, that it absorbs some of the kind of revolutionary argumentation from the left, and it uses some of that, and then it's taken a little bit of this like nationalist, uh, chauvinist type of, uh, of thinking, and it's bringing it all together. And so, you know, she says it's contradictory program. Mm-hmm. And that's pretty much the exact opposite of what Arendt says, where she says that the program of totalitarianism extends logically and over and against anything else in the world, any kind of form of particularity or whatever, from this like germ of a single idea. 
right? So, you know, the idea of our racial supremacy is such that it a lot the logical outworking just brushes aside any form of historical particularity. And the Marxist analysis says, no, there wasn't that coherent, crystallized ideology in the beginning. Rather, there was this hodgepodge of different ideas thrown together to make a program that was really about um, just lashing out in violence in order to preserve a certain social position, right? Yeah. And this actually, this this really makes me think of uh, what Benjamin has to say about the aestheticization of politics, right? He talks about how fascism, yeah, is the aestheticization of politics. And I think this really works well, or there are a lot of relationships between the statement and this development of a highly contradictory program in fascism that's all... Uh, created in order to allow people to lash out because what he says, uh, and I mean, there are, there are a few different layers to this statement of the aestheticization of politics he has, but, mm -hmm. but to begin, you can see how this is, this relates to uh, what you just said, Keegan, because Benjamin, when he says this, he's talking about how this is a period in history where uh, the proletarianization of the masses is, uh, is still being processed. It's still sort of fresh. You know, this is after the industrial revolutions that swept across Europe. And whereas socialism, Benjamin says, uh, kind of gives a political program, let's say, uh, you know, I'm obviously paraphrasing here, uh, but uh, gives a kind of political program to the masses and, you know, uh, wants to give them their rights to basically change uh, property relations in the property structure. Fascism only, he says, wants to give them uh, a chance to express themselves uh, uh, while, while uh, conserving the property uh, relations and property structures. And I think when you link that to this idea of having this hodgepodge of like rhetoric and uh, you know boring revolutionary phraseology here, you know uh, maybe boring some liberalism uh, there, and just like uh, uh, trying to match up your your rhetoric and your speeches with uh, like whatever political interest there is to just draw the masses towards this large war effort is a sign of this like non-correspondence really between uh, a political program, political demands and uh, like real material structures. Mm -hmm. And so there's like this, there's an expressiveness there, I think, uh, that that shows a, a way in which politics uh, is no longer about meeting political demands or making real uh, transformations, but is uh, is like utilized towards ends that are separate from the state's statements themselves or something like this. There's a hollowing mm -hmm. out of the the real uh, uh, the real commitment to the statements, if mm -hmm. that makes sense. Does that mm -hmm. does that yeah, make sense? It, it, <laughs> it speaks to the spectacle aspect of it, right? I mean, like, fuck. I mean, like the, the that woman who was making movies for Hitler, like they're beautifully shot, incredibly you know enthralling movies, but at the service of something you know monstrous, you know, in the realist way, right? Like, but so it's like the the non content is hidden by this glossy surface where you're just sort of like mesmerized you know like by the the display or whatever and, and that's like still around if you look at biden's inauguration like that staging and i wonder how you know campaigns were before the nazis like i wonder what what changed after like the visuals of it and stuff because there's probably definitely still some remnants of, of it now you know because it's so flashy and effective right mm -hmm. yeah for sure 
for sure. There we're still inheritors of a lot of that, a lot of that aestheticization and a lot of those techniques. Yeah, yeah, um, are still present today. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and so I think it's interesting too, like what you're saying, um, Alex. What we can see from that is one of the things that recommends itself about the Marxist tradition and its understanding of um, fascism is that it is internally diverse and there is a lot of analysis going on that was happening kind of at the time in response in, 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 you know, kind of in real time to the emergence of fascism. And then, you know, as time went on, you know, people um, who were deeply influenced by the Marxist tradition continued to think that stuff through, you know, and there's this whole kind of tradition of understanding and interpreting fascism um, over time, you know, like uh, Benjamin was writing later than Clara Zetkin. And then, you know, you have people like the Frankfurt School and so on who are writing again even later than that and uh, bringing kind of new insights to the table about what was going on for, uh, in in the context of fascism from their his- historical perspective, but uh, grounded in this uh, kind of class analysis I, I do think that that uh, development and that kind of cr- critical ability to develop these new um, interpretations, that, that's one thing that does kind of recommend the, the Marxist tradition of interpreting fascism as a bit more intellectually serious than the totalitarian uh, interpretation, which, you know, while it might have some kind of scattershot insights, really doesn't have that... Um, core foundation that maps well onto the history that then others take up and say, yes, you know, this is uh, a useful tool and here's how we can continue to analyze it. You know, instead you're left with this um, kind of hazy false equivalence between uh, the Soviets and uh, the Nazis, which I think is not particularly helpful and, you know, doesn't give us a lot of serious analytic purchase. So yeah, I think that would be the way, I would adjudicate that debate, but you know, thoughts on that issue, this kind of on the on this kind of debate between two possible interpretations, and uh, both with these separate kind of prior political commitments. Well, obviously, I find the Marxist one more convincing and compelling. I mean, yeah, um, yeah. Like I said, the other one, she was got the ball rolling, and no, Arendt was writing after, but she she was writing from a place. It's where the the place that they're writing from that's the different thing, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, because, like, I mean, I prefer, you know, the Frankfurt School because they see the effects of it in, in culture. Arendt is, it seems to me, I haven't read her, so I probably should shut up. But she's very, like, abstract and sort of classical in her in her thinking a little bit, you know. Like, she is, yeah. Well, I think that's right. Yeah. And, uh, and that, that's, a, that's a really good point, uh, Will, because, again, yeah, she's fled to the United States, which is like the savior country, you know what I mean? And it's really uh, like the context in which she's in uh, obviously had a huge impact on the way that she was thinking and theorizing about Soviet communism. I mean, she's, she's literally living in a hotbed of anti-communist uh, propaganda, basically. And like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, and, uh, and these people, yeah, these people are writing, uh, at a time when socialism still had some purchase, you know, especially on the turn of the 20th century, but like even a bit later when Benjamin's writing, uh, the age of mechanical reproduction, quote unquote, real existing communism was a thing, yeah. <laughs> you know? And like, it was when, it was when, uh, uh, Arendt was 
writing, obviously, but uh, like she was writing uh, on the outside of, mm-hmm. of that, you know, and on a, at a different time in history. And like she's not she's not surrounded by people who are being shaped by uh, revolutionary ideas about ch- changing uh, the status of the working class and society, and cha- like changing, meeting the political demands of people who are working their asses off for a shitty wage, and like who are uh, facing horrible working conditions and all this other shit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, partisans of a different side of a serious political divide. You know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and so it is a question of uh, when we're interpreting this stuff, like where do our commitments lie? Where do our solidarities lie? Because history ultimately, you know, as you can see here, with when we kind of look at these different interpretations, history is used in different ways to achieve different ends. Um, you know, and two people can look at the same piece of history and then make it serve, uh, tell a story about it that serves their own kind of contemporary um mm-hmm needs and like we definitely see that in the interpretation of fascism historically right like that is deeply deeply present and okay so i think is that probably a good transition to say so okay we have these different kind of ideological not in the Arentian sense but in the sense of um you know a cluster of uh political ideas and commitments you know uh, we have these two kind of ideological um, approaches to fascism uh, on the one hand. But on the other hand, I thought it would be worthwhile if we could also talk about this more historical um, and empirical school of understanding what is going on in fascism, which has its own set of criteria and uh, definitions as well, right? Um, So yeah, do we want to dive into that stuff a little bit, Alex? What do you think? Sure. Yeah. Let's do it. Okay. Great. Uh, because you have a pretty good account of some of that form of analysis um, in the sense of the precursors to fascism. What were the preconditions? What makes fascism distinct? You know, um, some of that analysis. Do you think um, you want to talk about that a little bit? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. So. You know, again, uh, like like Will said at the beginning, uh, I'm also not uh, an specialist on this, right? But I have, I also have eyes and ears, and uh, and uh, as as does Keegan as well. So, but uh, we're, <laughs> uh, but uh, and and again, this you know, this is this is obviously not uh, going to be the most thorough summary uh, or account of the factors that had made fascism possible, but they all are nonetheless interesting to think about and to uh, remember. Uh, and it, they all they all really help uh, us understand, you know, what what was happening. And, and they can kind of be maybe interpreted or compared to our contemporary political contexts and uh, and then you know maybe they'll give us uh, insights into how to analyze uh, the present uh, pick up on what the differences are but maybe see how uh, some of them uh, some of these uh, different moments fit together so I mean there are all kinds of yeah there are all kinds of ways that you can create a historiography of this but um, I think that what I would like to do is actually just start out by uh, saying that one of the yeah one of the main and critical 
things that had uh, been a condition of possibility for the emergence of fascism in the 20th century was the introduction of mass politics into the political sphere. So in 1848, there were you know, a series of mass revolutions in, uh, in numerous European countries, and uh, these revolutions had been shaking up the established political orders that were controlling territory, controlling populations, you know, controlling resources. And these revolutions were partly driven by industrialization, but also they were driven by a lot of the philosophies that had been uh, developed uh, previously, uh, especially during the European Enlightenment and later. And some of these revolutions, they brought in a certain kind of liberal and uh, a certain kind of democratic form or forms of discourse into the public sphere uh, and into uh, countries in Europe uh, where some of these revolutions were taking place. And although some of these revolutions had been, you know, met with counter-revolutions, had failed, maybe popped up later, mass politics at this point had become something real. Uh, it had become, a, a, you know, a feasible form of political participation in European society. And, you know, up until this point, a lot of the political regimes that had been existing were, you know, maybe developing liberal and conservative uh, forms of politics or, you know, monarchies. And, and I guess what is really important about all of this is that the introduction of mass politics into the political sphere was something that was completely new to conservative and liberal governments. And this newness was something that created a sense of instability in the political and social orders and structures that had uh, existed until then, because these forms of government weren't really sure how to govern uh, masses of people. They were completely... Uh, incapable of governing masses of people and didn't have the uh, techniques of govern governance developed yet in order to respond to this new social and political phenomenon. Um, and so, yeah, prior to this form of mass politics, liberal and conservative governments had basically, uh, if if at all, if they if there were any uh, in, in uh, each case, obviously, they had an electorate that would be formed by a wealthy and educated class, and the you know the working class and the proletariat were a social stratum of society that had previously been in entirely excluded from the political sphere and from exercising some kind of power over the determination of uh, government. And it's really, yeah, it's really after 1848 uh, and uh, during these, you know, uh, after this kind of series of revolutions that um, socialism is emerging as a kind of political specter uh, and has it has real potential um, to crystallize as a political order in Europe, in different in, in different in different countries, and so there's a pop there's a popularity and there's an upsurge in socialist thinking across Europe, and what makes socialism so powerful? One of the things that makes socialism so powerful is the fact that, unlike liberalism and conservatism, socialist thinking and you know communist ideas and theory that are floating around in Europe are capable of speaking 
to the stratum of society that was excluded from the political realm by conservatives and liberals. So already socialism kind of has this upper hand, right? It, it already has a discourse that has uh, included th that kind of sex sector of society. And so it's, it's already kind of one step ahead uh, than the conservatives and liberals. So at this point, socialism, you know, it has a real potential to change and transform political and social and economic orders. And people are scared shitless. <laughs> I mean, uh, the conservatives and liberals are scared shitless and, you know, uh, old, old institutional orders are scared shitless because they're like, what the hell are we going to do? Socialism is coming for us. <laughs> and so this is kind of part of the historical setting, you know, where, uh, you know, Robert Paxton kind of calls this, a, there's a, a sort of crisis in liberal, uh, liberal governments where, um, okay, these new historical processes have created a certain kind of destabilization, a certain kind of uh, novelty in in the way that uh, in in political dynamics uh, in in the twentieth century uh, in Europe and uh, and socialism is uh, you know a viable uh, uh, historical force and it's it's got the potential to uh, have victories in uh, in Europe and and it does have some victories in in certain places just the Bolshevik Revolution uh, in Italy I think in the Po Valley there had been. Uh, a lot of electoral successes with uh, socialist parties. Um, they had, you know, established labor organizations. There were uh, socialist presses, um, and uh, these real victories were beginning to change the shape of politics in uh, different countries in Europe at the time. And uh, and facing this kind of uh, fear. Liberals and conservatives kind of just turned to fascism because what did fascism offer? Well, it offered new techniques of government uh, that could speak to this new phenomenon of mass politics. We kind of talked about this already uh, with regard to uh, the hodgepodge of rhetoric, right? Already there, you see some of that uh, new technique of like speech writing, for example. Um, that's emerging and capable of, you know, appropriating left-wing thinking here and revolutionary rhetoric there to maybe uh, draw some of the proletariat over, you know, and and so fascism was, uh, you know, developing uh, strategies and techniques of government that the liberals and conservatives uh, didn't have. It's also kind of like the more I think, like the more I think about it, the 20th century is pretty much everything but socialism. You know what I mean? Everything <laughs> yeah. but. So, you know, fascist, let's go as long as the economy keeps running. Yeah, yeah, away, right. Totally, it's insane. I know. We could have gotten our together. Yeah, <laughs> like yeah. They said there was two wars of fucking you know Holocaust. You know, oh. think about it. We're in 2021. Like this is like. Practically a hundred years ago. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Talking yeah. about like, we're talking about fascism merging a hundred years ago, basically mm -hmm. uh, after the first yeah. world war and, and when socialism is still uh, pretty popular and like, and yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, Walter Benjamin in his age of mechanical reproduction actually talks about how like some pretty good ideas, you know, he's like, uh, I mean, there are all kinds of ideas crammed into that tiny uh, little epilogue of the very last page of his uh, essay where he's saying how 
you know, uh, our societies, you know, again, paraphrasing here because uh, he, he, he says it so much more eloquently. But uh, uh, to summarize, he's basically saying like, you know, our societies just haven't really figured, like they haven't figured out the best way to incorporate technology into uh, the social fabric uh, because mm-hmm. uh, right now they're just committing to committing technologies to imperialist warfare and to the upholding uh, class structures as they are and like upholding property relations as they are when, you know, we could be sending uh, airplanes in the sky to drop seeds instead, you know, they're dropping incendiary mm-hmm. bombs, uh, you know, and like destroying entire civilizations and shit. Yeah. And it's just like, literally he's already got that insight where it's like, yeah, we could look at all the fucking technology that we've created. Why can't we ch- use it to like better ends? You know, <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, instead of going to war, like you could have, you could use all this technology for so many different things. And, mm-hmm. and, and so, you know, some of the ideas are already there uh, for having, like, for just redefining the way that we're uh, mobilizing all these technical resources, and and uh, and yeah, it's it's a shame, you know, like that uh, we're we're just like caught in these uh, uh, never it's what seems like never ending cycles of crisis after crisis and war after war, and uh, anyway, uh, but but yeah, yeah, so so yeah, and. And so that, you know, that's kind of like, yeah, the stage, let's say, like uh, Will, Will was saying, you know, socialism, anything but socialism, right? <laughs> it's kind of the, the feeling, the general feeling, I think, among uh, a lot of the traditional political elites. Um, and, and so, yeah, so that's, that's kind of one of, the, one of the major factors, right? The, the emergence of mass politics on the political scene. And then another one that's really, really important to remember about this, uh, this, you know what? What helped fascism kind of uh, take root uh, was the First World War, right? Uh, and and how and how the First World War had shaped political citizenship. So you know, the First World War is one of the first. It is quite literally the first time in the history of humanity, actually, where you have this un, un you know unimaginable massive world war that has radically transformed the way that society has been structured and ordered. And this creates a completely new form of political subjectivity of citizenry. You have the mass mobilization of technical resources. You have a mass mobilization of citizens. You are uh, transforming domestic spaces, cities, factories into a literal home front. The entire face of uh, your society has been transformed into a permanent state of war. Everyone has been mobilized. All of these resources have been mobilized towards the war effort. And uh, and so this radical transformation of social and political order um, has created a kind of a temporary uh, period of uh, political experimentation, uh, especially for those in power um, who are essentially beginning to discover new ways and techniques uh, of managing their resources and managing their populations, managing foods with food rationing, and coming up with all these new regimes in order to govern the masses, right? So mm-hmm. already we see how the world, uh, the First World War was beginning to, it, it was like a historical precedent for 
uh, for people to, to design uh, techniques of government uh, uh, that would be useful for the fledgling, fledgling modern nation states that were taking shape in the at the beginning of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, just to build on what Alex is saying there, um, <clears throat> you know, Paxton calls, uh, he says the First World War was the most important, the single most important precondition for the emergence of fascism in the 20th century. And he gives some pretty interesting uh, reasons as to why. And we're drawing a lot on Paxton as we kind of give this account. Um, but, you know, he talks about the way that um, trench warfare approached the utter limits of human endurance and analogously um, war government approached the outer limits of regimentation of life and thought, right? They Every government to a certain degree that was involved in the First World War um, experimented with the manipulation of public opinion, you know? So this is a transformation from like prior techniques of government, which were really structured around this like uh, enlightenment idea of rational argumentation. And then there's this shift to um, mass media um weaponization of ideas to try and generate sentiments within populations so there's this huge shift that's going on there and that's probably you know mass media i mean come on look at our own time like this is what definitely one of the most important developments of that period um and so i just maybe i could read this quote from paxton real quick which i just think really encapsulates this well He says, a political space for mass-based nationalist activism mobilized against both socialism and liberalism had only been dimly visible in 1914. It became a yawning gap during World War I. That conflict did not so much create fascism as open up wide cultural, social, and political opportunities for it. Culturally, the war discredited optimistic and progressive views of the future and cast doubt upon liberal assumptions about natural human harmony. Socially, it spawned armies of restless veterans and their younger brothers looking for ways to express their anger and disillusion without need for old-fashioned law or morality. Politically, it generated economic and social strains that exceeded the capacity of existing institutions, whether liberal or conservatives, to resolve. The experience of World War I was the most decisive, immediate precondition for fascism. Yeah, so I just think that quote really like hits the nail on the head there, right? Um, we see the way that the war generated this cultural milieu, you know, where uh, these ideas about, oh, yeah, history is this progress and we're going somewhere and so on is stripped away. And it's like, well, no, you could be plunged into just the ultimate horror. You know, you can have the tiny husband, you mean, put it right, the fragile, tiny human body against the backdrop of just this enormous industrialized transformation of the world, right, of the landscape, of the earth, all this stuff. Um, So you have that cultural shift. Um, You have this social shift, right, where suddenly everyone's been through this experience, you know, they've been in the trenches, they fought this pointless, hopeless war, they come back and they think, you know, what was it? for? What was the purpose? And they're looking for um, ways to express that, express that frustration, to lash out. And Paxton makes the note about the younger brothers. It's the people who didn't get to fight in the war, but who had to stay home and watch it happen, you know, and all their anger and resentment, their desire to kind of prove their, um, um, 
masculinity and their uh, vigor, right? Um, their own anger. And then there are these political these novel political constitution uh or sorry contradictions where um you know the the forms of liberal governance that had existed in europe at the time um before the first world war you know with laissez-faire type of liberal economy you know limited state intervention only to the point where um to make slight adjustments to the market there's a kind of preference for uh, a parliamentary form of like elite democracy there's um, a preference for uh, yeah a, a, a laissez-faire economy for a kind of education-based meritocracy all those things were wiped away by the first world war and the state had to decisively take control of all all um, of the serious um uh, of the serious liberal institutions that had existed prior in order to totally mobilize their populace, their populace um, towards war, right? And so seeing that happen, seeing that, uh, Alex was talking earlier about the failures and the contradictions of liberalism, like th- this is where they really came to a head and they're broken down. And it's like, well, what were these war governments? You know, were they still liberal governments? Were they still conservative yeah. governments at that point? Yeah, exactly. You know, those are, those are questions that, those did then this kind of return to normalcy, this attempt to say, oh, well, let's go back to this liberal government model. You know, liberalism didn't have the answers, right? It couldn't answer those questions. Well, why did we have to mobilize like that, right? Um, and so I think those, those, um, uh, all those things were like festering there that opened up the space that fascism could really step into. And, um, you know, you take those techniques, weaponize them in a serious way and say, yes, we do need this kind of form of total um, total mobilization. We do need this momentum. You know, here is meaning, here is purpose. Um, and here are uh, these absurd uh, forms of manipulation, which will get you to think that this is reality, you know? <laughs> so, um yeah, I just think Paxton lays that out really nicely, and that that's a, a, a fundamentally convincing argument that the experience of World War One was the kind of decisive precondition for the emergence of fascism. Yeah, and you're basically harvesting a lot of hurt and like harm and hate, right? Well, that was a lot of alliteration, but like it's this bundling of of all this whole, the worst residue energy that the system creates, and it's you know, sort of arbitrary and stupid and, but very emotional. That's why, you know, the logic, it's really hard to debate. You can't even debate with the, with the fascist in this because there's no, it's not logical. The, you know, if you say that the moon, it's the man on the moon who, who, you know, is telling them to do this, they'll just fucking repeat it. You say, okay, well, how the fuck do you f- <laughs> argue with that? You know what I mean? Like it's, it's another sphere, you know? Mm-hmm. And I don't know. I think it's, it's, yeah, that's why it's potent. That's why it's potent. Yeah, because it recognizes this kind of fracture that you know intellectuals had been picking at for a while beforehand, right? But this fracture in the kind of rationalist European modernity, right? That oh, um, you know, if we can all come to use our reason together, like we will know these objective. Uh, 
facts about the world and we can sort of uh, then on that basis develop these um, novel uh, social forms of organization that will be the most ultimately free and that everyone will sort of assent to because they will see that like, yes, this is good and correct. And, you know, I think you still see this within liberalism and certainly existed within liberalism at the time that, uh, you know, it's all about using our kind of uh, using our reason that if people can be demonstrated these, the, the, the rationality of our order, they will sort of come around to it and, and, and acknowledge its, its uh, supremacy and its legitimacy, right? And even socialism, I partook of this kind of uh, modern rationalism in a big way, you know, they say, all right, let's, let's examine scientifically and rationally the trajectory of the our institutional forms throughout history, you know, and then clinically kind of make interventions in order to restructure them to prioritize human well-being and freedom on the basis of what we know to be the case that, you know, human beings need, um, you know, shelter, food, and so on and so forth, and housing, whatever. And uh, then we'll deliver that very effectively according to this kind of a centralized scientific plan and, um, you know, when people recognize that this is what we're doing, they will rationally assent to that. And, uh, you know, there's this kind of, um, uh, sense that that's a, an appropriately scientific approach to the world. Right. And, um, I think a lot of these ideas were really challenged in the 20th century. And that challenge is, um, taken up and metabolized in fascism, right. Um, where the fascist, doesn't offer you uh, a kind of rational, a rational story about why they are legitimate and why they are powerful. You know, instead they, they, you know, Paxton says that uh, fascism is an affair of the gut rather than the brain. He says it's not yeah. an ideology on the model of the 19th century um, uh, ideologies, right? Rather, it's something else. It's this new political form. It doesn't produce a set of new ideas. It takes existing ideas and, you know, um, synthesizes them through these new kind of technical developments and these developments of governance um, and, you know, weaponizes them on this on this scale. So it's not really about a kind of rational argumentation. And that's, I think, also partly why liberalism um, specifically really struggled to um, combat it, you know, and we could see with our Marxist interpretation of fascism that um, the Marxists, they tried to understand it rationally, you know, and they were like, yeah, this, we can still explain what's going on here. Um, but, and I think that they, you know, were right to an extent, like we can, it's not as though we need to throw up our hands and say, oh, you know, we have no idea. It was just this magical event or something like, no. And, and, and that's that kind of essential break or the essence of fascism that I think we want to step away from. Um, mm -hmm. But there is something to this, the, uh, this reaction against modernity expressed in fascism, the like ultra modern reaction against modernity, you know, it's like only through the novel technologies, the emergence of mass politics, the uh, mass media and so on, was this reaction able to find its legs and find its voice. Um, but at the same time, its target is the kind of um, rationality of the um, existing modern political projects. So, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I remember some neuro brain science guy 
I don't have that terminology right, <laughs> but a, a brain scientist who who described like it as um, we're we're sitting on top of an elephant. The elephant is our emotions, and the guy on top or the person on top is like our reason. But like, who, what guides what? If the elephant wants to go in a in a direction, it's gonna go. And the guy on top, the little guy on top is just going to sort of be there to sort of look as if he's in control, right? But, mm. we, you know, because that's what, you know, the Frankfurt School wanted to know, why are people attracted to this? Mm-hmm. Like, on an individual level, you know, and I think that we can't, and Marxism is always accused of sort of not being emotional enough, or, or you know, anyways, yeah. So I, I think that that role is 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 sometimes underestimated, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And everyday decisions, man. Remember when the, the pandemic struck? Like, people were buying toilet paper. Normal fucking rational people were just like buying tons and tons of toilet paper. It, it's not rational, and, but on a normal day, they might be completely rational people. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, what, <laughs> what what causes that break? And you know, these are yeah, oh, like stress, I guess, or like something. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, that no, that's a it's a valid question to ask, right? And to be like, okay, why? <laughs> What's going on here? I mean, there were there were definitely a lot of uh, photos of empty shelves uh, showing up and <laughs> circulating online. That was it. Yeah, that's that's yeah. your mass media that creates this sentiment yeah. within you. You know, it grabs you by the heartstrings and says, like, "Oh, you, you know, you might not have enough. Like, you better make a move." You're like, "Oh shit, I'm booking it down to the grocery store here to fucking load up onto TP." But <laughs> <laughs> also, you know, in the 20th century when mass media was invented, it also invented the masses. Yeah. A new, like, I think. Alex mentioned a new subjectivity and a new kind of way of interacting with with society right mm-hmm. yeah no exactly exactly yeah benjamin yeah benjamin mentions that in, in his essay where he's saying you know uh cameras uh in the technique of the bird's eye view was capable of actually like presenting the image of the masses back to themselves right and in, in yeah. that way forming the image of the masses uh, in the social imagination. So it's mm-hmm. like uh, suddenly the spectator can see themselves as part of a, like a mass, right? Because again, this is something fairly new, right? Uh, uh, back to what Keegan was saying with Paxton um, and the First World War, it has created the first experience, in uh, the first time in history of this like experience of national unity and nationalism, right? And patriotic subject and all this other stuff. And these techniques of uh, 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 of the camera and of cinema that are being appropriated and used uh, by fa- uh, by the fasc- by fascists um, are uh, are uh, yeah capable of um, uh, giving a, an uh, aesthetic again aesthetic shape uh, of uh, the masses as a group you know as a unified group a nationalist group uh, and uh, shaping the subjectivity of the spectator. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. So that's um, a lot about the kind of emergence of fascism, and but fascism also got to power. And so I think that's kind of the next thing that we want to talk about a little bit here. Um, and is, yeah, fascism in power, you know, we know there's this huge war. I mean, it's an expansive, incredibly destructive thing. World War II is like still fucking... <laughs> you know, known to everyone, right? That this was this all consuming experience. And at the time, you know, people didn't know that fascism would lose, right? Like we have kind of the benefit. Seth Klein said this in his book, and I thought that was insightful that, you know, today we have the benefit of hindsight where we think 
that, oh, we know where the story is going and that fascism would lose that war. But at the time, people didn't, you know, and especially early on when the Nazis, when they took power and they were expanding to such an intense degree, you know, um, it looked like they might win. Like they had kind of taken Eastern Europe. They were moving in on the Russians. They had conquered Paris. They had conquered France. You know, most of Europe was under fascist power. And then you had Spain and Italy hanging on and expanding and they were allies. So all right, Europe's looking pretty fascist, you know, and England's getting hit by nightly bombing raids. It it looked as if um, England could fall too, I think, from this side of the Atlantic, like from the North American perspective, there was no guarantee um, that that the fascism would lose that fight. And so I think, I just think that's an interesting thing to remember, you know, is that now today we can say uh, like, Oh yeah, it seemed obvious. We've especially like glorified that narrative of like, you know, the allies victory uh, to such a, such a high degree that, that um, it seems self-evident that it would come to pass, but it's like enshrined in their history, you know, like, Remembrance Day and all this stuff. Like ever since you're a child, you're wearing the poppy. The poppy. poppy thank you. <laughs> uh, as well, a First World War reference. But uh, anyway, um, so yeah, and I, but as as fascism expanded, you know, it was able to resolve certain of it of its own internal difficulties and contradictions, right? Because as we've been talking about the. W- Basically, when the conservative establishment um, in Germany made the decision to throw their lot in with the fascists and say, yeah, we're going to let Hitler rise to power, they were doing that because they were afraid of um, anyone teaming up with the socialists in order to form a kind of electoral coalition that could threaten their established power, right? And I think – you know, why did they do that, right, is a good question to ask and I wanted to – uh, I just referenced this book by uh, Corey Robin, right? The, called the Reactionary Mind, where he talks about the motivating factor in the conservative um, tradition writ large. What he calls the kind of reactionary um, tradition is this um, felt sense of having power, having dominating power in the private sphere, and then losing that power. Right. So and then there's a reaction against that to try and get it back. And he says this is the the motivating factor uh, of conservatives throughout history is that sense of loss of power in the private sphere. And so, uh, you know, in the case of the socialist threat in uh, Germany in the 1930s, you know, it was the sense of um the employers and the owners of uh, factories and productive means where they were like, you know what? I used to have all this power over my workers and I could kind of, I could make them work 16 hours and I could pay them two pennies an hour and that was fine. And uh, I could tell them to do whatever I wanted. And like I had this experience of power and then along came this labor movement that's full of all these socialists and they've made these demands and they pushed back and they've, you know, cordoned off my power to such a degree that now I can't, I can't do that. Right. And so I'm, kind of pissed off about that and I'm not down for them to keep getting more and more power because I want my former power back and um, I think that that is a good way of explaining like why the um, conservative elites at the time made the decision to kind of throw in with with the Nazis it's like it required that socialist 
threat, you know, and it, which also at the time looked very serious. You know, you had the Bolshevik revolution, which was a successful revolution. You have a rising um, communist power and it has connections in all these other European countries. And it is explicitly saying, yeah, we're trying to foment uh, revolution in all of you capitalist countries and the capitalist countries, you know, they don't want to see that happen. So they bring the Nazis in, they team up with them and um, you know, then together they create this um, this fascist state, you know, and those institutions are in, you know, Paxton talks about this, the old uh, Marxist theory talks about this, the way that there are tensions between um, these parallel forms of institutions in the traditional um, bourgeois uh, bureaucracy and in the new um, fascist institutional bureaucracy. And this is what Paxton calls the prerogative state, right? This new um, fascist system of bureaucracy and institutions. And he says the prerogative state never really gets um, to fully express itself and to like fully um, be in power in the context of the home country, right? In Germany, the traditional institutions of the the parliament and the church and the business owners and so on are, are still too powerful. He says, but where the prerogative state really gets to come into its own is in the conquered territories. So once they start to expand and once they start to build outwards, you know, build this, uh, what the Nazis called the Lebensraum, right? Um, the living space. That's where the that's where the real kind of fanatically devoted Nazis were able to just exercise their power absolutely without interference from the conservative elites, and that's what you see in places like Poland and so on under Nazi rule. Um, so, yeah, I just wanted to bring that up, uh, move a little away from the emergence of fascist power into the exercise of fascist power, and um, yeah, talk about the prerogative state because I think this is a really important um, idea, and especially when we try and come up with this definition of fascism, um, thinking about what the function of the prerogative state is, is um, very important. And the parallels between um, the Nazi prerogative state and other kinds of states is useful when we start to ask questions about how do we think of fascism in the contemporary context? How useful is this terminology? Um, this is a really important lens and a really important criterion to think about. So, um, yeah, uh, Will, Alex, do you guys have more thoughts about the prerogative state, about the exercise of power once fascists have kind of entered power? Um, do we have kind of thoughts about that? I don't know. I mean, I will I will say one thing, like just to elaborate a little bit on the idea, because with Paxton, when he's making this like binary between the prerogative state and let's say a traditional or normative state. Uh, some of the examples uh, that, you know, jumped out at me were uh, the case of Italy in Mussolini and like part of the prerogative state that kind of Mussolini had been creating involved his, uh, you know, fascist militia, the black shirts. Right. And so like, you know, in the Po Valley, he talks about, uh, uh, and I mentioned this before, po, the Po Valley had a lot of kind of socialist victories in Italy. So in the Po Valley, uh, landowners, you know, the bourgeoisie who are upset about all of, uh, all of these uh, 
uh, socialist organized like labor organizations uh, that have been set up. You know, they they went to the uh, liberal state uh, uh, with complaints about the new sets of uh, relations uh, that they were subject to, and you know, since they didn't find that the liberal state could meet the their needs, they turned to. Uh, Mussolini and Mussolini just like sent the black shirts out and the black shirts fucking like created a wreckage out of the uh, socialist headquarters basically in the Po Valley. I guess uh, once you start to kind of consider these yeah parallel apparatuses and organizations in a way that are that can be commanded by a fascist leader or uh, leaders I would say that um, you might be able to begin to try and take some of those ideas and apply them to, I guess, a contemporary context and say, okay, so are there things that exist today that are similar to, you know, the black shirts? Are there things that exist uh, in a Canadian or American context that are similar to the, to the, uh, to these parallel organizations, you know? And but then also, how how does Paxton even think of the normative state? And you know, what is what what are the social and political dynamics uh, within the state itself? You know, I just uh, I don't know. I yeah, these are just uh, these are these are the thing these are the things that yeah these are the questions that have been raised for me when I'm yeah here. totally like what constitutes the normative state. And so here I think, you know, we could fall back into Marxist theory and think about the state through that lens as this kind of um, space wherein uh, class conflicts are attempted to be resolved, like largely in favor of the bourgeois, right? And so like the state is already this site of internal conflict. But I think we can even say more, like, because it was in the prerogative state, right, primarily in the Nazi case where um, the ultimate horror and the true reason why fascism is something that will never be forgotten uh, was expressed, right, like the Holocaust. Um, And where were those concentration camps? Like they were primarily located in occupied Poland. And how were the execution of Jews carried out? You know, it was carried out often through this you know, intermingling process of top-down policy against Jewish, but also like bottom-up um, anger on the part of, or, or not anger, but like hatred, right, on the part of um, rank-and-file Nazis who were just finding ways to execute Jews, you know, in these kind of really horrific conditions of, of uh, a total war scenario. And then that would be sort of given the go-ahead and 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 – the stamp of approval from the Nazi high command and they would say, Oh yeah, you guys are doing it right. But uh, let's try to organize it a little more here. Have these, uh, have these weapons, have these tools, have these different implements. Here are these uh, ways that we've created. And so there's this exchange going on between the prerogative state and the, um, you know, quote unquote normative state that does ultimately create this, the, the greatest horror of all. Right. So yeah, I think that's worth kind of pointing to. And I, yeah, I, I guess the difference is that the normative state imposes certain constraints 
on the kind of excesses of violence to which people are driven under the conditions of fascism. So there are certain constraints. They may not be the constraints that we want or ones that we think are good or helpful, uh, but they are different kinds of bureaucratic constraints that prevent um, just the straight up, like it's not like a concentration camp built in downtown Berlin or something, right? It's like a, para, it's like a yeah, it's a paradigm, let's say. Like the, uh, in, in the cases in Poland, you know, you have like a paradigm political shift where, yes, it's part of the Nazi uh, party. It's part of the political order of uh, Nazism yeah. in Germany, but mm-hmm. you don't have that oversight, let's say, or you don't have that. Yeah, you don't have those restrictions. So, uh, so then, yeah, the parallel state uh, mm-hmm. uh, exists in uh, Poland, let's say. You know that the one that is yeah. like under the full uh, jurisdiction and control. Yeah, exactly. The, like just yeah. full on, like a, a, a the SS, they're everywhere. in charge. Like you know, a lot of people die. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Grim, very dark stuff. But I think this is important because this is a pivot that I kind of wanted to make in this conversation to like pivot back to the North American context, and it is about these questions of what is the normative state, you know, what, what is a legitimate state, what are, you know, and even Arendt uh, comes back in a little here where she talked about this question of fascism, like exploding the kind of um, foundations of legitimacy, you know? And so I think what we see in a lot of these, with the exception of the Marxist theory, but what we see in Paxton and totalitarian theory, which again are, quite distinct and um, have different interpretations of what the historical kind of data shows us. Um, But what they share is this idea that there was a legitimate state and then there are, there is this change. And so for our end, that change is that the legitimate state just evaporates into thin air, I guess, and then it's totalitarian. Whereas in Paxton, there's actually this developed historical analysis, which says, well, there's this emergence of this thing called the prerogative state. And it's the tension between these different institutions, which really creates um, the, um, like a fascist state in power, and um, where some of the worst horrors are, um, carried out you know and he has that in common with the marxist theory where they say yeah fascism is about these internal uh contradictions and tensions um, 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 amongst classes and amongst this new form of bureaucracy with the old uh bourgeois bureaucracy but the marxists don't say that old bourgeois democracy was legitimate and paxton at least insofar as it was a legal order is saying it was a legitimate legal order right and I mean, I think he's critical enough to not say like that has some kind of metaphysical foundation or whatever. Um, but there's something there where he's he says the prerogative state is meaningful insofar as it's a break from the legitimate qua legal normal normative state, right? And so what I wanted to say is that then when we start to shift these lenses uh, on fascism, you know, back over the Atlantic and we start to ask questions about how does fascism show up here in North America, in the American and the Canadian context, you know, there's some really important questions about legitimacy and about the normative state that are raised. And I think that's where I wanted to go next was to kind of shift gears and start talking about settler colonialism and that, in so many ways, uh, the settler state 
um, has more in common with the prerogative state than it ever does with a normative state in the first place. Although settler colonial orders do establish a kind of normative state, right? But in order to get there, you know, just think about that history. So, you know, you have England and France and so on sending all of their folks over. And those are basically like they're SS, like they're going to be the most hardcore, like um, people who are the least constrained by legal orders who come to the new world and carry out um, these horrific genocides of which, you know, we're aware. And we've uh, talked about a, a fair bit previously, like of the indigenous people who are here who enslave Africans, you know, and um, they create these structures, but outside of the boundaries, outside of the uh, limits of the normative states that had existed in you know places like England and France and Spain, right? And instead, they are these radicalized um, for kind of prerogative states that then um, just through like pure brutal violence establish themselves as a normative state. But I think that that underlying contradiction of their establishment is not resolved. You know, like that's what we know today. And like, that's what we see all the time um, with these struggles against um, uh, ongoing colonial injustice, you know, where it's like, when did colonialism end? Can you point to a time? No, you can't, right? It is an ongoing process. And so although we've sort of legitimated ourselves, you know, we being settler um, functions of, of the settler state, you know, um, can we be said to have a normative state in the same way that existed in old Europe? I think it's it's a question that we need to ask if we're going to talk about fascism here. And um, I think it's a more complex and challenging question that people are ready to uh, admit. So, yeah, do you guys have thoughts about that, about this shift um, to turning that lens of fascism that we've been talking about, these interpretations of fascism, to uh, North America now and how how that kind of operates? Like, what are your thoughts there? Well, uh, I, I guess one thing that, like one argument that someone might make is that, oh yeah, well, maybe maybe the idea here is that uh, part, of, part of that whole legitimizing process, at least in the Canadian psyche, uh, and it, certainly in the United, uh, the psyche of the United States, uh, was the actual process of creating these. Okay, it was a very obviously complicated process, and and would have required all kinds of projects in the creation of state education and historical narratives and like arts and all these kinds of things, right? Uh, that would be able to actually create some kind of uh, like nation state that's defining itself in opposition to the old colonial metropolises, right? So like the whole legitimizing process of creating Canada as a normative state uh, would have been through the founders, basically, the founders of, of Canada. But like, you know, who who are these founders? Like fucking uh, Sir John A. Macdonald, like, you know, an extremely racist white supremacist dude who is responsible for cultural genocide in the Indian residential schools and who's responsible for literal genocide uh, as well. Well, literal genocide yeah. policies in the northwest exactly uh, exactly yeah to build the rail the railroads and stuff and like um and i guess i feel like the framing that paxton uses uh doesn't doesn't hold as strongly here because 
how how are we to say that the regular videos of police violence and brutality and literal murder of black people and indigenous people here you know and other racialized minorities are not expressions of some kind of deeply racist you know racist uh, expression of what could be considered uh, some kind of fascist violence you know it's an exclusionary violence to the full participation in a already shittily designed competitive uh, kind of Darwinian hellscape of capitalism, you know, and neoliberalism. And it's like the very foundations of the, the political continuum of Canada, uh, they're, they're exclusionary of different forms of political life. You know, it has a, it kind of parades itself around as inclusion, like inclusive through uh, liberal uh, frameworks of multiculturalism and, and, uh, and uh, certain kinds of discourse that are supposed to, you know, allow for the emergence of alterity, but to a very particular extent in as long as it meets certain kinds of needs. Uh, but, uh, you know, if you want to live a free life in relation to the earth, like, nope, sorry, you know, uh, you're going to either uh, get your ass kicked, you know, get thrown in jail. Uh, you're going to be forced into some for- form of submission uh, in- into the capitalist, uh, sorry, mm-hmm. into a role that is uh, uh, exploitable uh, by capitalism, right? And and so I, I just like, I don't know. I mean, I you know, should we... I don't know. This is something that uh, interests me. This question of like uh, calling cops fascist, you know, like I feel like that makes a lot of sense when you look at, uh, especially just like the history of the Black Lives Matter movement. You know, um, if you read some of the early literature, early black literatures. I just finished uh, Malcolm X's autobiography, as told by Alex Haley, and like, you know, uh, you're you're seeing the history of life. Uh, in America from the perspective of somebody who's like literally deeply excluded by uh, a white society, you know, and he, you know, opens your mind up to all these really fucked up forms of assimilate, um, assimilative practices and like forms of like bodily mutilation that people went through just right. to like look white, you know, and to integrate and all these kinds of things. And, and so once you, once you move on to this whole new terrain, um, yeah, you can't really, I don't think you can really use the, the binary that Paxton sets up, or if you do, you have to be extremely careful, uh, and uh, embedded in it's in a new context, right? Where the norm, normative state may have certain kinds of political formations within it that are emerging that can be considered prerogative, but then itself is, uh, in a, in a new context and from another standpoint is itself a progress <laughs> yeah it's like we have like nesting dolls of prerogative states you know <laughs> yeah, exactly but it, it also plays into the like what like the logical and illogical thing a little bit too like i mean adorno kind of characterizes uh fascism as like an irrational response to the irrationality of the order we're under which says that it's super reasonable but like you know I don't know if if I was like uh, an indigenous person looking at this, I'd be like, "What the fuck is going on?" Like, it's totally not rational, but it's it's rational in a spreadsheet sort of fucking way, yeah. like instrumental sort of thing, right? So fascism festers in that from that order and from all that repression, all the shit we have to take, and some people just can't, you know, need to challenge it in a way because they're either not aware, you know, like of, of 
their frustrations or you know but it's definitely a, a systematic thing that that you know erupts from time to time and i think it's going to keep going i'm already seeing in the fucking guardian like how to beat the trumps the trumpists in 2024 i'm like no now you don't not you know it's like only every four years when they vote but like it's way more than that you know like so there's that blind spot of, of like complacency and oh it'll go away and it's only an election thing like come on you know like i don't know yeah, for sure. That no, that's a nice point that like it's an irrational reaction to the irrationality of a system that claims to be rational, you know. Yeah. And I think that's so true. Like in North America, you can that's so obvious, you know, our claims to legitimacy in the United States and in Canada are are deeply rational, you know. If you start to kind of pull on the threads of the historical roots of how these states came to be, you're left with a prerogative state, you know. You're left with not a rational sort of constitutional order, you know, really, but you're left with an exclude highly exclusionary constitutional order, you know, which claims, oh yes, um, the United States Constitution, right? Uh, we the people uh, declare these truths to be self-evident, you know, but who are we? Like who gets to be included in that we, you know, and who got to decide which truths are um, determined to be self-evident? And I think when you start to um, tug on those threads a little bit, you know, you're left with like, huh, okay, so it was like wealthy slave owners who had, um, you know, actively participated in these genocides, and they're the ones who are the people interesting. And so these claims to like rationality into this like clear eyed kind of enlightenment project, you know, have this irrational, deeply violent kind of underbelly. And um, there are lots of responses to that, you know, and some of them are good and some of them are bad and some of them are extremely bad. Like, And so Paxton himself even says that the KKK was probably the first formation that could meaningfully be considered fascist, right? Because it was this like revanchist um, reaction that uh, had this disdain for the normative state and that had uh, – this desire for this restitution of perceived wrongs along the lines of this um, order of racial supremacy. Right. And so, and we know that like Hitler was inspired by the America and so on, where he was like, wow, what they did to those native people, putting them on those reservations and killing them all. That was great. This is exactly what we want to do to the Eastern Europeans and the Slavs and everything. That's like, you know, he, this is explicitly written in Mein Kampf. So like, you know, there are these lines of uh, there. There is this connective tissue between um, what we could what could be considered the normative state in the North American context and what would be considered the prerogative state in the European context, right? So it is it is very complex how to kind of name fascism um, here and how to identify it because on the one hand, I think you could go down the road where it's like, oh well, America and Canada are fascist and they were from the day one. You know, you could go down that road, but then you have these kind of novel formations emerge, like, for lack of a better word, fascist movements that are here, like these, you know, right wing extremists who are, uh, you know, work operating outside of the legal framework of these states uh, in order to carry out acts of brutal violence. Um, yeah, well, how do you analyze that? You know, what do you make of that stuff? And I think this is kind of what I'm where I'm funneling us is towards this next question that I wanted to put to you guys. Um, and which is sort of a motivator for this whole thing was like, was Trump a fascist? Um, was this a fascist regime that we just saw or to what degree was it? I think we've picked out a lot of these issues and now I'd love for to hear your guys' thoughts on that issue in particular. Like, because I think that's why everyone's talking about fascism is they think Trump's a fascist and 
Is he? Uh, you know, is he fascist adjacent? Uh, what do you guys think? I think, you know, the more you guys were talking about the historical development of fascism and how it's a grab bag of, of, of all sorts of discourses, it's kind of like a demented postmodernism in a weird way, you know? And I think Trump is that too. Like, I think it's just this sort of after nagging after effect because of the order we're in this is going to like a feedback glitch or something we're going to get every fucking 40 years i don't know <laughs> like he's not regime is too generous yeah. a term i think it's like you know he's a cr- created from reality tv he's a, the medium is the fucking message yeah. sort of i don't know you know like he, so he embodies some aspects of it but i don't think there was a brain enough to to have it as a, a really like concerted force that could, you know, actually attain. I, I think the next one will have learned the lessons of Trump. I think Trump is more like I said, he's more like a just going with it. I don't know. He, you know, like I don't think he, I don't think there was thinking behind it. Yeah. Yeah. I hear that. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think like, I don't know, some of the, some of the, at least in the way that a lot of Trump was like presented to me was, you know, in in those uh, scenes where he's giving huge speeches to people, and and uh, people are just cheering him on, and people are wearing like MAGA hats, and like they've got the fucking uh, the uniform, the Trump uniform, basically. You know, and uh, they have uh, American flags around them. And I don't know. I mean, there was a way in which he he tried to rally people up and and like all of that symbolism just makes me think of white supremacy oh, yeah. you know what it's i mean that was a very fascist moment if you will like that those images were extremely strange and 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 eerie, yeah, yeah you know like yeah and like was trump a fascist at heart like pure fascist maybe not but like uh <laughs> like maybe he was more like the uh, you know, he's a businessman, right? And uh, he's got a fuck ton of money. And uh, he honestly, he's just like, he's he's part of that, uh, that order, uh, the economic uh, order of uh, elites that was flirting with fascism towards uh, economic gain and mm-hmm. uh, towards yeah. uh, personal gain, uh, let's say, in, in certain ways too. Like it's, it's, it is hard to, it's, it's hard to really determine because think of what happened at uh, the cap at Capitol mm-hmm. Hill. You know, um, yeah, there was a big group of people, uh, very mobilized, ready to break through the doors and windows of the Capitol Hill building. Uh, some people destroyed camera equipment, and pe- uh, some people had planted pipe bombs. Right, like people came prepared. People had guns, um, so there, you know, there's like, there's at least a a, a fear, you know. Uh, was this, yeah, was this crowd big enough to like cause a world revolution across, or like a, a countrywide revolution? No, like, um, but at the same time, there weren't, there wasn't a, a lot of police presence, right? And we've already, like, at least I've seen. Uh, uh, in the last four years, uh, oh, yeah. flirtation between the police and the white supremacists, you know, police doing the like white power symbol with their fingers. And and so there is like, there's some sort of, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to 
it's hard to answer that question. It's a slow creep. <laughs> like the FBI knew about these white supremacists infiltrating the army and and the cops in the states, but because Obama was black, like there was, was like an optics thing. And anyway, like it's it's been known for a while that this is happening. I mean, we're either going to look at the sixth of January as like oh some event that happened or the beginning of something fucking terrible. You know what I mean? Like we we don't know yet, right? Like. It got neutralizes, but it's not yeah. over. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's yeah. Just how economistic Trump was also sets him apart from the fascists. I do think that yeah, when you look at like Charlottesville and you look at one six and this kind of stuff, um, you know there are definitely some fascist elements kind of on the model of these traditional like white supremacist like classical groups. You know, like the brown shirts and so on, right? You can definitely see that with with those guys. You hear about the Proud Boys and stuff, and you're like, yeah, like these guys, they want to be the brown shirts. Like that's what they aspire to be, um, right? Is like extrajudicial fascist white supremacist militants. You know, like that. That is, I think, what they want for themselves. But the question is, did they attain power in the Trump movement? Was it? I mean, it's always going to be these incoherent uh, amalgamations that. To compose fascism. But I think that, yeah, Trump really capitulated to just the mainstream Republican ideas anyway. And just, he, you know, there wasn't as much of a break there. And I think now that the Trump presidency is over, we can even look back at like the kind of neoconservative uh, movement and, and, and the Bush presidency and say like that, maybe that was even closer to fascism in some ways, you know, it definitely had a lot of those elements as well. And it was much more powerful and um, actually accomplished things that it wanted to accomplish. I mean, I think ultimately it was a failure, you know, the, the neoconservatives basically failed to do what they wanted to do, which was revitalize this like national spirit of America in the wake of um, the end of the Cold War. You know, they wanted their new Pearl Harbor in order to be this whole like this new American century. Right. And that didn't really materialize for them. Instead, they kind of fell apart there They because you know, it didn't take in, in at, at, at the level of American society in the same way. And that kind of empty, soulless consumerism that they were kind of critical of was uh, victorious in that in that case, right? And whereas Trump, he's more, he's closer to that empty, soulless consumerism. Like that is him. That's, he has got nothing other than that, right? And um, so, and, and his vision is very economistic. Like, yes, he wants America to be like strong on the world stage, but strong in terms of like trade deals and uh, making good bargains and like economic shit, you know, he's like, we're going to bring the, even, even the, his, at his most fascist, I think, where he was kind of most influenced by Steve Bannon and so on. There's still this like a very economistic undercurrent to it um, that, sets him apart from the kind of like hard state politics of the fascists. And I, I, can I read just quickly this um, quote from Corey Robin in his uh, chapter on um, Trump? He wrote, um, yet if fascism's achievement was to mobilize a mass base of the nation or race, consolidate the state apparatus, clear the political field of opposition and dissent through terror from above and violence from below, and thereby pursue its program with maximal leverage and authority. It's plain that Trump has fallen short of the ideal, if that was ever the ambition in the first place. The economism of Trump's vision would suggest a serious constraint upon that ideal. Yeah, so I just think that there's a creative dead end that we're seeing with right now with Trump 
Um, and even, you know, Biden certainly is a creative dead end. And I think that, you know, when we, uh, Will, you said earlier that the whole 20th century political model was basically this idea of like anything but socialism. And, you know, let's all come together to just crush socialism and like defeat it, you know. And then when they did, they came together and, you know, they did all the worst evil. They did the Holocaust. They fucking did the Vietnam War. They did all this shit. They did all the worst evil, you know. And then they did – the Soviet Union was destroyed and, you know, actual um, existing socialism is marginal. The left in the imperial core is marginal, is broken, um, you know. Then the reactionary – he has nothing to do, you know, he's out of ideas because his ideas ultimately come from these liberation struggles. And if these liberation struggles aren't succeeding and, um, you know, don't exist, he doesn't have any creativity on his own. And to me, like, I think Trump is the like tired end of a whole reactionary trajectory that, um, you know, goes throughout the 20th century. And um, so, when it comes to this question of is Trump a fascist, I think it's too confused when we look at these different lenses that we use to uh, approach fascism and then we turn them back on North America. It's like the, the situation is quite different, you know, and um, it's difficult to say yes or no. And so, uh, you know, which I think both of you guys are kind of alluding to. You're like, well, that's actually a really tough question to answer. Right. And it is. So, yeah, I, I, instead I see him as like this, kind of creative dead end, you know, um, because as in the left's weakness, you know, the right also loses that, loses its discipline, like loses its momentum. And uh, that's why you have a Trump and somebody who as useless and incoherent as that, you know, and those incoherences are allowed to really come to the surface because there's no one to challenge them on it, really. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, what worries me though, is that the, just the transparency of, how thinly veiled some like that mask thing and some of the images like him posing with the bible like at least fucking bush there was like a low-key fascism but it was kind of more subtle <laughs> with trump not and that's and it's worrying because it's like you don't even have to hide it anymore mm -hmm. and people are gonna get on board like that that's what's like what the hell is going on you know what i mean like mm -hmm. that, that's the damage and that's it, it's empty but it's it's very if, efficient though yeah. you know it's hard to, it's like, it's also hard not to use that word yeah, though, right. uh, <laughs> too, because like, I don't know, just thinking of uh, uh, the detention centers that like yeah. uh, Trump like put yeah. children and families in and separated kids and families and this kind of shit. And like, uh, like you said earlier, Keegan, like Charlottesville and these kind of fringe extreme extremist groups popping up and proud boys and all this other stuff. Like there are definitely, I feel like there, there are new vernaculars of some kind of, some kind of contemporary fascism, you know, that's on the political scene here, but it's, um, yeah, it's not, it's not the same as like, yeah, in the 20th century, let's say, you know, it's not the same as the classical fascism, but uh, uh, but it is like yeah, it's like unique to our time, and 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 it's uh, and it's been it's been emerging out of new kinds of uh, historical conditions, like uh, uh, like the existence of the internet, right? Like yeah. Some of those, yeah. some of those. But uh, you know, and then but the, you know, the, these some of these groups are like really bizarre too, you know, like uh, like uh, uh, the lone wolf style yeah. uh, murderers, uh, you know who like mass shooters and stuff. Um, and uh, yeah, they're just like all of these different kinds of weird political phenomenon 
that uh, <laughs> and like I don't know what I'm saying here anymore. It's like is this just generalizing? Because <laughs> he's sort of gotten us used to it now, and you know, and like we're fucking intelligent people, but like I mean, I'm not saying other people aren't, but like you know, and we're kind of like a little bit lost here. Yeah, you know? like it's yeah, it's tough to have like the right analysis here, and I think. Yeah, the word fascism is a strong word, you know, and it evokes some of the worst crimes that have ever been done by human beings, right? And, uh, you know, that's that's kind of important. And so if uh, I think a lot of the time what people are saying, it, well, by using the term fascist, it is kind of that gut reaction where they're like, I, these are the kinds of people who I could see carrying out those worst crimes ever. And they certainly talk like it, you know, and they, they walk the talk, right? Um, you know, we can see that. We see the kids in cages and we say, yeah, that, that, I mean, are they killing those people? I don't know, but they could be. Like, I would not be surprised to hear that news. It would be bleak, you know. I think a lot of people have that sort of sentiment where they're like, oh, yeah, border concentration camps, like separating families, brutalizing infants. That's the kind of shit that, you know, is, that's in the ballpark for sure. And I, I see that and I, what's the word that jumps to mind? It's It's fascist, yeah. We should have a fascism spectrum. Yeah. <laughs> of one to 10 or something. I don't know. Some kind of system. Yeah. No, it is like, but I, so I think what, what I, where I was going with that is that if you're using the word fascism to say um, that this is a dramatic and radical break from anything that had come before in, uh, in American history, like kind of on the model of the totalitarianism theory, then that word is not, very useful mm -hmm. and it's not doing good work because Trump is not distinct from this larger trajectory of um, American history and of American rule. I think that's what we're trying yeah. to get at by saying that the American state is a kind of prerogative state already. You know, it's like, no, it's not that he's this radical break, bringing something radically new, disappearing the old democratic institutions. And oh, now that Biden's in power, oh, thank God, there's going to be this return to like peaceable democracy and um, parliamentarian, uh, parliamentarian government and so on. You know, that's wrong. Like, that's not a good analysis. And so if that's what fascism means and, and, and the way that you're using it is doing that work, then that's that's very sloppy and that's mistaken. But if you're using the word fascism to say um, that in order to call attention to some of these deep, uh, you know, deeply racist, um, deeply uh, violent and kind of genocidal um, elements of American uh, society and the American state and the Canadian by extension, the Canadian state and so on as well. Like if you're calling attention to that and this is your kind of way in by saying, you know what, I think Trump might be a fascist, but you know, you're not saying that to say it's a complete break. Maybe this is just the first time you've become aware. Maybe this is your kind of door into these kind of critical discourses about these settler states that exist here. You know, if, if the word fascist can do that work for you, then it is useful. So there is a, a, a strange kind of equivocation that, that is going on here, you know, where the fascist is both um, something novel and something that has um, uh, preconditions, you know, uh, where it's both a break from what came before and it's, it, it isn't a break from what came before. It's there's a form of continuity there. You know, there are these kind of paradoxes within it. So it's like when people are using this terminology, 
and I think they're just going to keep using it because there's like that knee-jerk reaction. And we'll see how, how how that term continues to be used, you know, into this Biden presidency because it's going to be a harder case to be like, oh, like, you know, Biden is a fascist and a clear break from the history of American power or whatever. Like, no, he's not, right? Obviously, his whole thing is that nothing's going to fundamentally change and this is like a, a return to course of the, uh, you know, normal state of American hegemony and so on. And But if you can say, you know what, most of those fascist elements are still there. Um, then I think it could be a useful analytical term. And uh, yeah, so that would be kind of my my take on the, the is Trump a fascist problem. Fundamentally, there's no difference. I mean, there is a difference, but there isn't at the same time. Trump's discourse on like Black Lives Matter or the Republicans continually voting to curtail black people's rights to vote. You know how they do that? They shape the districts. So uh, yeah, you know, yeah. So like, is there a dif- difference in that? You know what I mean? Like it's almost a thing of style over, but like the essence is still, they're still fascist in their fucking soul. I think that should be like, <laughs> so we should destroy, you know, like the, the, the fascism yeah. of the soul. You know? yeah. yeah. They're, the, they're that kind of political subject, you know, who's like yeah. ready to, do horrible things. Yeah. And like, you know, we can see that shit. Let's not be in the dark about it. They're fucking bad people. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, that's probably like, we're getting to a pretty good place to wrap here. Like we've kind of each given our take on the, is Trump a fascist question? And turns out even after talking about fascism for two hours, like it's almost impossible to answer. But, <laughs> 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 but you know, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, yeah, I was just going to say, like, uh, but like, we have had some insights, right? Like, politics today uh, actually has inherited a lot of what fascism created and built for uh, government, you know, and um, and and I don't know. I mean, there are all kinds of different. There are all kinds of different splinters, let's say, that uh, yeah. of like fascism that we've picked up, and we're like, okay, like. You can sort of see how it fits in here, maybe. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know. It, it definitely. I feel like it definitely has at least provided some, uh, yeah, insight into what this term means, and then maybe, maybe, hopefully, uh, for some listeners, uh, has has created a a sense of how how it can still, you know, in a sense, apply here and now. Yeah. Um, it just matters. It just matters how you're using it and how 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 it's uh, how it's being contextualized and how we understand the history of fascism, right? And yeah. how uh, how how we can see how maybe yeah, like uh, police brutality's got some pretty fascist elements, you know, and uh, how we can see the connections between settler colonialism and uh, fascist constructions uh, in Europe, you know, and and you know these kind of historical discourses about fascism, they can shape your political instincts. You know, like what can we learn from the Marxist tradition? You know, they say pretty clearly, um, <laughs> the bourgeoisie, the liberal and conservative elites who are currently ruling, they're going to side with the fascists. Like they're going to take this fascist side against you. 
like we we can't trust them to protect us from the the violent thugs who are out there who are raiding the Capitol building and who are you know marching in Charlottesville or whatever. Like they're going to team up with them over and against you if you come together with your friends and say, hey, we should have uh, decent wages. Like maybe our housing shouldn't be um, prohibitively expensive, and maybe we shouldn't um, be murdering uh, black people in the streets. You know. Um, mm-hmm. If you're kind of make if you're coming together to make those kinds of demands, uh, know which side the bourgeois uh, bureaucracy is going to take, right? And there, those are some of the important lessons as well from this history um, that I think we can pick up from that that Marxist interpretation of the class character of fascism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think power, no matter what form it is, will take what works. <laughs> Right. So even if it was a fascist technique, they'll sanitize it a little bit. But, the, you know, they're going to use it. Right. It gets sucked into the machine. Yeah. 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 They're very pragmatic, you know, <laughs> in a sinister kind of way. <laughs> Good place to wrap. What do you guys think? Yeah, this has been a very enlightening conversation, actually, and it has helped me crystallize a lot of these thoughts. And so I hope for folks listening, this does provide a good kind of launching off point. And as we're saying, can kind of hone your political instincts um, to see where the lines are drawn, right? Like whose side are you on (laughs) and uh, whose side are the elites on, right? Is Joe Biden going to be, is he going to take your side against uh, the Charlottesville guy? You know, uh, well... You know, what do you think? These are uh, important kind of discussions to have. And so hopefully this gives you some context for how this term is used. And maybe this is something that we can watch over the uh, coming years. And basically, yeah, I hope that everyone listening has kind of enjoyed this conversation and got something out of it. If there's stuff you wanted to talk about and you thought it was interesting that we didn't go into as much, or you think we're totally wrong about something, maybe you think, oh, you're raking our end over the coals, but you misunderstand her, you know, stuff like that. <laughs> you know, if you're having some of those reactions to what we're saying, we'd love to hear that stuff too. And, you know, engage us in conversation, whether that's on uh, Twitter or, or at the Poplar Tapes or we're um, uh, on Facebook. We have a Facebook page or email, poplartapes at gmail.com. So, you know, sh- drop us a line if you are interested in this stuff or you like what you heard. If you uh, would share this episode maybe on your social media with your friends, if you thought it was good, that'd be cool too. That would help us out. So, yeah. Uh, but yeah, thanks so much for sticking with us this long. This has been a, a long one for sure. Thank you. Thank All you. right. Thanks, guys.